the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We are happy to have you join us today. How are you, my man? I... What are you going to guess I'm going to say? You are tired. <laughs> Apparently, every other time I've told you that, I've been a liar because <laughs> this this is real tired today. This is, oh, this my is tired gosh. <laughs> Holy cow. So, it, it feels like two days already. So you know how I always tell you things just move fast in life. Today is my son's birthday, 12 oh, right years old. Holy so cow. happy birthday to my, to my boy. But that's crazy, man. My wife and I, you know, we're posting pictures and he's this little kid. It was nuts. Are you guys going to do anything special? Oh, we're going out to dinner. He picks the restaurant. And, uh, he picks the restaurant. I like he that. He does. As, in, in his world, as long as it has a... Uh, as long as it has uh, good good wings, uh, then then he likes the place. So I like his style. I do too. I do too. Well, besides my son's birthday, more importantly, today uh, is September 11th, which mm-hmm. is obviously the 18th anniversary uh, of that horrible day that we all remember. It's, it's the day, uh, if you're of a certain age, that you remember where you were, what you were doing. Uh, and so wanted to remind us, just hear a, a couple of clips of audio, and then I just want to, uh, just I thought it would be important for you and I to just reflect on 9-11 a little bit, because it's such an important day in our history. So let's listen to these audio clips real fast. Just like a train rumbling for maybe like 35 seconds, and then it was like this pause, and then boom, hit with all the dust, and it was black, I mean pitch black. I don't know if anybody could have survived being on the street at that time. I want you all to know... America today is on bended knee in prayer for the people whose lives were lost here, for the workers who work here, people of New York City and New Jersey and Connecticut, as we mourn the loss of thousands of our citizens. I can hear you! So those just kind of bring back some memories of what was going on on that day. But I, rem- I wonder, where were you on the day? What do you remember about September 11th, 2001? Yeah, I was, uh, I was in college. I was going to community college back home in Detroit. Mm. And I remember I was actually getting ready to leave. And the TV was on. The TV was on in our house a lot. And so that part wasn't totally strange. But I, I remember my mom just sort of standing 
facing the the TV and I don't know something about the way that she was facing it was very peculiar to me. Yeah, yeah. And I I it I just sort of sta- I was in utter disbelief. Yeah. And I remember uh, specifically having like two or three tests that day, mm. and not a single like professor mentioned anything about any of it. And I was just in this. I was in this fog, and I and I bombed all the tests. Mm-hmm. Like I, my brain was. You still took them. I still took. Yeah, I went to school. I was. Yeah. Uh, you know, no one really knew what to make of any of it. I remember parents being, "Well, I guess you should still go to school." So, so I did, and it was. It wasn't until like a couple of days later, actually, that I had a buddy of mine, a, a really good friend, call me like two or three in the morning, and he said, "I ju- I just saw the clip where it was like a, a zoomed in, uh, zoomed in footage of of a guy who just jumped before the tower actually collapsed," yep, yep, and he's yep. like. I, I thought I was doing okay until I saw that. Mm. And that just kind of wrecked me. I could like hear it in his voice. He was sort of like the funny one in our uh, group. Oh, yeah, yeah, And I yeah. could like hear this fear and this like sorrow in his voice. And I was like, oh, man. And that, that's, that's kind of when it kind of started to hit me too, I think. Yeah, I was a youth pastor at Glenelg Bible Church in 2001. My wife and I had been married for like a year and a half at that point. Mm. She was teaching. Uh, she was an elementary school PE teacher. And I'll never forget getting out of the shower and just turning the TV on and being like, the first plane had already hit, but not the second plane. And you're like, wait, what? I can't get my mind rest. And I remember right. she left just as that was happening. She hadn't seen it. And I just waved her down. I like had to tell her. Oh, gosh. And then she, you know, they had to do all that stuff at their school. But then a really random memory. I was going, uh, I was going to be playing in a golf outing with a guy from our church for this, uh, for this charity in hmm. Chicago hmm. Uh, that we all supported as a church. And I met him still at the church. And we're like, what do we do? Yeah, right. And we still went. We're like, let's still go support this charity. Like mm. We called them. They're still having it. And I'll never forget. We went down there and we drove and just listened to it on the radio, mm. uh, driving down the Eisenhower and just looking around in traffic in every car. Like people were just weeping just Jeez, in their car. Wow. It was the most surreal thing. And then I'll never forget, you know, I grew up out that way out in New Jersey and I'll never forget uh, my parents calling that night and we were just talking and talking about it. And then they called back and they're like, Hey, this guy that we grew up with in our church, who was just the best, Hmm. right? Like he was a salt of the earth guy. Uh, He was killed in the towers. And I'll never forget that feeling of like this national tragedy becoming really personal. Right. And just like, oh my gosh, like you can't get your mind. His name was Jerry Paskins. And you're just like, I remember trying to get my mind around the fact that this was like a salt of the earth type of guy. Yes. Right. Dying in this way. You're like that. That is like the face of evil in the, uh, killing goodness in some ways, like in a movie. So mm. just a surreal day. What do you remember for the days following? Like as, uh, as you know, September 12th, September 13th, and it just kept going. Well, you know, I had a unique experience because I lived in Dearborn, Michigan, which uh, we've That's mentioned right. before. Dearborn has the largest Middle Eastern population per capita outside of the Middle East. At least it did in 2001. And so, you know, I had a job at a coffee shop and there was a lot, I remember like a good deal of, of kind of subtle racial unrest and, and like whispers of this or that, or don't, you know, if you're Caucasian, don't go to this spot tomorrow night. Or uh, if you have brown skin, you know, avoid over here for the next week or so. And I remember even, you know, thinking like, is this real? Like it was a very, it's a very odd uh, experience and it feels surreal and it feels so long ago, but also feels so recent, you know? Yeah, and totally. I, uh, I, I found this, this prayer that, that Pope Francis shared that I, I wanted to read. Cause I think it, I think it, this for me was so helpful when I first read it. He just says, God, so much violence, so much pain, so much heartache. May our memories of this day remind us of the horrors of war as we grieve with those who still mourn 
and share memories with those who cannot forget. May we be stirred by your love and compassion for all. As we remember those who bravely responded, no, we give thanks for their generosity and hospitality. May it remind us of the call to be good Samaritans, reaching out across race and culture to other victims of violence. So many in our world have lost loved ones to terrorism and war. May their plight fill us with the longing for peace. Mm. Let us seek for the understanding and reconciling and not turn from your kingdom ways. Above all, God, may we remember your faithfulness and learn to trust in your unfailing love. Amen. And I just remember thinking like that just that just spoke to me when I first read it, and it's something that I, I try to read around the time uh, every year. That's really good. I, 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 there's certain things that I always read, one of them being the article written about the falling man that you were discussing mm-hmm. here. Another one about the, uh, if you ever, if you have some time tonight, uh, Google the man with the red bandana Mm -hmm. and it's so inspiring. I read a whole book on that one, but, uh, you know, making it more now thinking about today, I do remember in the weeks following, like nothing was good about it, but there was some good fruit as a culture, Mm. right? Like Mm. it's like we were a little more brother and sister and we're a little more united and man, does that feel a million miles away right now? But hopefully even just the remembrances of it can maybe spur that back up in us a little bit. Yeah, and not all good either. I think there was that's also, I mean, the beginning of a lot of division yes. uh, for people of color in our country, particularly those from Middle Eastern descent. Yeah. And I think that that is a whole other piece that I think those on the receiving end would say that changed my family's life yes. forever. That uh, There was an article today I was reading that just said uh, our country changed that day in so many ways. Like that, that's the marker. Mm-hmm. So I uh, thought appropriate that we start there today, September 11th. Uh, 18 years ago, a day that changed our country, uh, spent time praying for those uh, who were most closely affected by that. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about marriage uh, and, uh, and uh, impor- a uh, well-known couple uh, talking about their divorce. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today. Remember, uh, you can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. Where can they find our podcast? Wherever they darn well. (laughs) please <laughs> wherever those podcasts go wherever those sneaky podcasts are hanging out that's where you can get us so uh we're excited to have you join us on this wednesday afternoon am i allowed to make one weather comment just one per show oh you're allowed to make it's as like many as you like 90 degrees outside mm-hmm. today i'm like oh it's a beautiful fall day now we're back into like the upper 60s or low 70s and all of a sudden i got outside today i'm like uh, is it like July 11th today? Do you know what blows my mind? <laughs> What's that? This isn't a grinds my gears. It just blows my mind. <laughs> that people in Chicagoland, in the Midwest, are still baffled by the massive swings in temperature. It's, a good it's this every Count year. baffled. Every year. They're like, oh, it was just 70. Now it's 90. You're like, is it your first week here? It yeah. Does, it, but it feels like we've hit that time of year where we've turned that corner. We're like 90s. But in the we rear say rear that mirror. every year. I we know, say that every gonna, year. There's going to be a snowstorm in two <laughs> weeks. <laughs> I want to like look up what the temperature was like oh, on this man. day, the last five or six years, and see if it isn't I consistent. Because as you know, you're with me all the time. I, I like to wear the uh, shorts and the hooded sweatshirt. And I went outside in the hooded sweatshirt today. I'm like, bad choice. Oh, I'm just used to it. So we're glad to have you join us today on this hot and steamy Wednesday afternoon. Steamy. Wow. Yeah, it's all that. Uh, So there was an article on CNN and and, uh, it was interesting. Anytime there's a well-known person uh, who gets a divorce, it kind of gets written up. And this is a well-known couple. Sarah Palin and her husband, Todd, have filed for divorce after 31 
years of marriage. You, I'm sure you know Sarah Palin. She's the former governor of Alaska and was the 2008 Republican vice presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much about them getting divorced. With Todd Palin, he cited, listen to this, an incompatibility of temperament in his marriage to Sarah Palin, uh, such that they, they find it impossible to continue to live together as husband and wife. And then it goes through uh, kind of uh, their rise to stardom and all of this stuff. And I don't know, uh, when I saw this, it wasn't like, oh, the Palins or this. Every time I see a divorce, and it's it's just a, as a pastor, as a husband, uh, every time I see somebody getting a divorce, and especially after like this much time, it just makes me sad. It just makes me sad. And so I guess what I wanted to do was to use this as a little bit of a jumping off point to say, uh, how do you not end up in the point of having, quote, incompatibility of temperament? <laughs> After 31 years of marriage, because uh, you've been married three, married three, four years, right? I've gone on 20. Uh, marriage changes over the years. Mm-hmm. And so on some level, you understand how people get to this point. But on the other level, you're like, you just can't get to that point. Mm. Uh, and so uh, as a pastor, as a husband, uh, how do you best guard your marriage? How do you best make sure you don't get to this point? Well, let me first just say about this story, it is definitely sad. Yep. Like my first reaction when I saw the headline was, none of my business. Yeah. You know, like yeah. It, it is sort of And this, that's why I don't want to stay on this one so Which much. I appreciate, like the, yeah. More the concept of divorce. I know on Facebook, people are going back and forth about them. And I was right. like, no, that's not the point of this. But. Right. And we do this with anyone who's in the spotlight yep. at all. And maybe that's just the price that you pay for being a celebrity or a politician. I totally yep. get that. Yep. Uh, the irony of someone married almost 20 years asking someone who's been married three years, well, what advice do you have? I'm just like, <laughs> holy cow. But, you know. You have good insight into these things. Well, so. I appreciate that. I, it is, I will tell you, it is a strange thing because I've been a pastor, you know, for 15 now. That's so right. I've done premarital counseling well before I ever actually got married, which in some ways I think can give you an objectivity. Hmm. But on the other end, though, now having been married for a few years, I would love to go back and shake the neck of 25-year-old Ian. Like, hey, man, you don't know what you're talking about. It's interesting. And sometimes it, it really, it, you know, it can be helpful just to have a third party. I mean, maybe yep. that's, you know, part of my insight. Like, don't be afraid of counseling, like yeah. actual counseling. So a lot of times Christian couples are like, oh, we have that other couple that yep, speaks yep, truth yep. into us. And I'm like, that's good. That's called friendship. That's good. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> yeah. having an impartial third party that is trained to actually help untangle the yarn a little bit is really, really helpful. And I... Th- I have a hard time not landing on some of the cliches, like mm-hmm. communication, yep. you know, like I can't tell you how many times, by the way, before I was married, a couple would come into my office and like their blood is already boiling. It's yep. already clear. And so I would just sort of like play referee and then one would say something, but they'd say it to me. And then I turn to the spouse and say, did you know that? And they'd be like, I had no idea. Mm. And I turn to the first spouse. And I'd say, okay, say that again, but calmer and not to me, but to her. And it would, and would go back and forth, and they sometimes just needed someone to like referee. blow the whistle, referee, yeah. like, "Hey, you're not actually telling this to each other because you're just shouting over each other." And I think there are a lot of really small, seemingly small things that you could do. I think, I think just carving out time for date night. Yes, I think praying together. I think you know that's the kind of stuff that seems on paper really easy, yep. and that, it's cliche for a reason. Yeah, right. It's that's true. Important. But I would, I'm, you know, I'd much more love to know from two decades in what advice. <laughs> You might give. Yeah. So the first one I was thinking of was what you just said, and that's date night and time. Uh-huh. Uh, because, you know, life gets so complicated. Uh, you get kids and then your kids get older or, you know, you're trying to pay the bill, whatever. 
whatever it might be. And you can just start to take your marriage for granted. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. we totally need a date, but uh, she loves me. Like, we're good. <laughs> we're good. And then, you know, a week turns into a month. A month turns into three months. And you've ever had that situation where you ask somebody, when's the last time that you went on a date? And they mm-hmm. just kind of stare at you. You're like, well, might have just figured out the problem. Yeah, right. No kidding. Might've or a problem, at least. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't always have to be. It should sometimes be like a bigger deal out to dinner or like mm-hmm. a night. But but sometimes it's like, hey, kids, mom and dad are going for a walk. Right. And the kids are like, can we come? Nope. Right. We're just going to go for a walk together. And, right. And the, the irony is that's healthy for the kids to see. Like, oh. Right. Uh, They're prioritizing dad, each other. Yeah, mom yeah. and dad really love each other. To be honest with you, after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, in this case, 31 years, I think what also happens is it can become a lot easier to focus on the things that annoy you about mm-hmm. the other person. Uh, while forgetting that there's things about you that annoy them. Right, right. Or <laughs> conveniently. Like, I just think sometimes you have to remind yourself, like you actually have to like uh, make yourself remember, this is why I, oh, this is what I love about this person. Right. Oh, that's right. That's right. And uh, I love my wife to death. And there's every now and then we'll be doing something, going out, laughing, doing whatever. And I just, oh, I literally find myself going, Oh, this is nice. Yes, like this, totally. This totally. is it. This is it. And then you, and then you're able to get back into the grind of life mm-hmm. and just go, go, go. Because you know, life, life can really make it difficult. Not everything's like a Disney movie or a or a Hallmark movie of like, oh, we live happily ever after. Right. It can be really hard. And so, yeah, the way they use that terminology in that article is just it's frightening. It's this incompatibility right. of temperament. Because I, I get how people get there, but you just can't let it. You've got to be really active. That's what I would say. You've got to be really active in your marriage. You can't just assume it. Like, yeah. I'm going to be active in my kids and my job and this, but my marriage will be fine. We'll get to it after we retire or whatever. Right, and then you're right. staring at each other going, who's that person? Right. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I've been really grateful for in terms of techno- technology is that uh, like throughout my day, and some days are more stressful than others, You know, I can kind of keep tabs a little bit, kind of via Instagram stories and whatnot, what my family is doing throughout the day. And I was just having this experience yesterday. I was going through my wife's Instagram stories, and I was I was just sitting there thinking, man, she is really crushing it. And it was just so cool to yeah. get like a little glimpse into their day and watching her parent them and the stuff that they were venturing out to do, knowing like how hard it was to get them in the van in the yes. first place. Like just those couple short little videos, I just sort of was overwhelmed with a sense of she's a really great mom. Like she's doing a really good job, awesome. you know? And it was just like a, and it was just in the middle of my work day and I had to run to a meeting after that, but it was like, like you were saying, like sometimes that, that appreciation can get squelched when you're just both stressed out or you're yes. both running from thing to thing. And I was like, man, she's really killing it. And I was really grateful just that she's in my life and that she's the mom of that's our kids. Awesome. And yeah. Sometimes when I see my wife and kids doing stuff online, I'm like, Oh, that's really cool. And then my next thoughts are, it's like, I want to be there. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be I, doing this radio I don't show. I want to go to this meeting. I don't want to do this show. I want to go go to the Arboretum with them or yeah, whatever. So, I get that. Again, we don't bring up that article to like be, to throw stones or whatever at that particular couple, but I think it's a window into what happens easily mm-hmm. to a lot of couples without uh, putting effort into your marriage. So that's mm-hmm. our encouragement as two pastors, as two husbands. Uh, that's our encouragement for you. Well, alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us today. Really glad. That was, really, that was over the top glad. <laughs> oh, right so much gladness in the you room. You do not know how happy we are to have you join you us You guys, today. he's literally skipping right now. It's a miracle <laughs> he's staying on mic. I'm skipping around with a microphone in my It's head. a sight to see, let me tell you. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. 
Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk, at Common Good Talk Podcast, wherever it is you find your podcast, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, all the rest of them. You can find them there. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. We are grateful for all of you who do that already. Uh, also, you can find old shows at 1160hope.com. That's 1160hope.com. We're excited about the kind of the community we're building through uh, this radio show. And so we'd love to hear back from you, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, wherever else it might be. Well, uh, we had some heavy stories to start. So we're going to jump into the absurd here a little bit. You're right. Ready out of the New York Daily News. Uh, a London woman was raked over the coals. It's always a weird saying to me. Raked over the coals. I mean, it's pretty visual. It is. It is. Got to give them that. <laughs> she was raked over the coals last week after posting about her first ever trip to Subway, where she ordered a simple sandwich consisting of cheese, cucumbers, and mm. olives. Uh, it says, move over, Popeye's chicken sandwich. There's a new sandwich making a stir. Uh, the worker at the Subway station was so amused by the order that he took a photo of it. First time in a subway, and the worker took a picture of my order. Am I doing this wrong? Along with two crying emojis. She also posted a photo of the subway employee sat snapping a picture as well as a photo of the rather sad sandwich. She later clarified she'd been drinking alcohol before ordering her sandwich, and she <laughs> is a vegetarian. Oh boy. The response was mixed between derision and support, as well as suggestions for future trips to the restaurant chain. Uh, him taking a picture of your sandwich is the equivalent of when the teacher would announce who got the lowest score on a test and then make eye contact with you. Uh, and the list goes on and on and on. And so uh, is that a uh, is is that a legitimate? We're going to start with this legitimate sandwich or worthy of being mocked. People need to calm down. It that's, is the Internet now, you know, that's the heard of the Internet. I can't even just for the record. This is Brian's story. This was his selection. <laughs> that made me laugh. People are way too riled up. I I guess we learned that in our last two grinds of my gear segments. <laughs> Brian's, are, Brian's always like, I got 12 ready. And I'm like, I don't traffic. I guess I don't like <laughs> this poor woman. Cheese, cucumbers, olives. I don't knock yourself out. I mean, some of these have like profanity attached to them. Some of them are like really really aggressive and again i don't know why i hope for any better when it comes to the internet there is something about um what we choose to be outraged about i've often thought that like wow we're gonna be outraged about this uh and yet the number of people struggling with this or suffering from that why we just seem to hear whispers but no yeah let's go in on the subway sandwich that's the part that always seems <laughs> odd to me like this is this this is where we're putting our energy it is funny that it went viral uh you know if i uh you know, I I am a sandwich lover, so I do feel like there's a there there she there's you're a little not a, sandwich. You're not foul. a Subway sandwich lover, though. I love Subway. Oh, Brian, we have to pray for you. What do you, are you anti Subway? I can't even get into this with you right now. This no, is, no, no. Uh, let's get into this. I think Subway is gross. Why? Because it's gross. Just you know, they as they just peel off another layer of that ham, like it's a stack of hundreds, and they cut like that. They, they cut that weird cheese thing, and just like releases this like noxious <laughs> gas out the. I mean, they just they make it right in front of you, like they sneeze on their hand. They are sandwich artists. I can't even. They are sandwich artists. Uh, Jimmy John's, you good? Jer uh, Jersey Mike's. Yeah, I think they're all okay. Yeah. <laughs> you want more like the deli. Right. I want to go to the, I know that's fitting a stereotype. I want to go to the, whatever the local deli, although we have, a, I do too. Downers yeah. Grove, Birdos, that yeah. kind of stuff. We yeah. have a firehouse by my house, a firehouse subs. 
And that's actually pretty solid. Have you ever had that? I have. I can't believe we're spending a whole segment talking <laughs> we're about it. We're not going to. <laughs> it also, can I also say this? Yeah. When did we stop making sandwiches as a people? Like, when did, when did making a sandwich for ourselves become just too much effort? Do you, can I, can I, do you want to be proud of me? I mm, went home yeah. today wow. and made myself a sandwich and took it to Panera where wow. I was going to work. <laughs> proud doesn't even begin to describe, Brian. So, I'm so elated. You, you did touch on a deeper topic of the things we do get outraged about, right? the things that go viral. So for you... <laughs> Uh, what are the things that that do raise to the level where you personally would actually make comments on something and like be like, nope, I'm going to go in on this? Oh, I are mean, there things for you on Facebook, <laughs> Twitter, or whatever? Yeah, I tend to try to bite my tongue on Twitter. I I, I do honestly. This is not a um, a helpful peek behind the curtain, but I do a lot of direct messaging messages. If it is someone that I know really well, rather than commenting on this really? public thread, I will say, hey, I'd love to have a conversation about this. Like I'm seeing what you're saying. But this seems so inflammatory or so exploitative or so unhelpful. And I know that you want to do more than that. And maybe I'm being overly sensitive or maybe that's just a perspective. So I will I will try my best. I don't always succeed. But to instead send a private message asking if I could, even if we're not in the same you know state where we can't actually get coffee, they're like, hey, can we have a phone call about this? Or can we just message oh. here for a little bit? I will try to take it out of this public sphere uh, more often than not. So that's really interesting to me because usually I just avoid commenting and just get annoyed that the person wrote that. Like, I'll just be like, oh, but but I think I like conflict more than you do. I think we've talked about that, oh, too. That is 100% <laughs> true. Uh, so but that's interesting. And, and I, I don't know why I'm so surprised by that, except to say I don't think I've ever really known anyone who does that. So oh, I, do, I think you'd be surprised. I think more people. I, so do than, you feel yeah. like there are a lot there are a lot of those private conversations. Somebody sees a post and they go. Ah, that really bugs me, but I'm not going to air it out in front of the rest of the world. I'm going to private message. How right. do most people, how do friends respond to that? Church members, whatever, usually do. It totally depends. I will tell you one of the uh, one of the odd residual outcomes of that is sometimes, because I'm also a pretty firm believer in uh, I'm doing the best that I can to not delete people's comments. So if I post something on, and your own stuff. on my own stuff, okay. so if I post something and someone posts something that's really inflammatory, I, re- I really try to like let that stay there as best uh-huh. I can, but we'll still sometimes do the private messaging thing. But sometimes that looks visually like I'm not responding to this person. So someone else will say, Ian, are you going to call out this monster? Are you going to, and I don't want to like air our private conversation. You know what I mean? Like sometimes yep. it, that gets tricky yep. because you're, it doesn't look like you're publicly confronting this stance or this person. Um, so you do have to sometimes kind of take some of those arrows just for the betterment of the yeah. conversation. Yep. But th- you know, I, I also, I think it's, it's worth, really processing through you can't die in every hill so what are the things that you really are going to speak up about because it it can also start to rob you of your joy if you're sending private messages all day long about everything that (laughs) makes you mad you're going to just run out of life like that's going to drain you so uh, you know i want to learn to be better my wife honestly is is wonderful at that there's plenty of things that i've thought about posting or saying or sending Mm. i'll run it by her and she's got just this knowing look like is that the best use of your time are you going to want to deal with having to answer that Right, right. Well, that's interesting. That is a that is a I think a good takeaway from for people, hopefully out there who are active on Facebook. Because uh, if you're if you're care enough to be mad about something, you should probably care about the person enough to write them privately. Yes, and have a cover. Go out to coffee. Yes, I'll be like, hey, let's talk this through. Man, the world would really be a lot better place. One of the things that I try to say, at least to myself, is I want my opinion of others to pale in comparison to my love for others. 
So I don't want my opinion of someone or their perspective or their politics or that article they posted to in any, I don't want it to hold a flame to my love for them. And what I found is when, if by engaging in cat fights that, that often diminishes your love for the person and just kind of ramps up your outrage for the topic. And that, I think sometimes, I think it's Andy Stanley, yeah. never make a point at the expense of making a difference. Mm. And we make differences, I think, by actually having dialogue, not by shouting back and forth at each other on Facebook. That's really good. So two things. Do you think Andy Stanley just has a book of great sayings? I mean, that guy's got all of them. I heard Amazon selling a bootleg, actually. <laughs> like, could you just, you're sitting around one night, you're like, don't make a point at the, uh, yeah, yeah. Just that, you know, uh, at the expense of a, of a person or whatever well, she said. I'd be like, that would be like the greatest thing I ever thought. I think his brain legitimately just works like it that. It does. And I'd also like to say, we're getting pretty good at this, that we just took a random sandwich store, and I feel like we did pretty well to tell people, you don't just, be so you, outraged. You just had to pat us on the back, I didn't did. you? That was, that was well done. Oh, boy. And please, people, get meat on your sandwich and go to Subway. <laughs> eat whatever you want. That's the Ian Simpkins message. Eat whatever you want. Uh, for Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us today, uh, September 11th, 2019. Uh, hopefully, uh, you're using this day as, as a bit of a remembrance for a bit, uh, for such a big day, um, the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And hopefully, it spurs us on to do some good uh, to reflect upon the more important things of life. So I, I'd actually even set alarms on my phone this morning, actually, to I go off that. during the different times that there was impact and the towers fell it was actually a very sobering way to start the day like a little notification would go off with the yeah. first tower hit whatever and pause and pray i don't know it was like a like a digital online. liturgy or something it that's, was interesting that's good i i tend to have a little bit of an over obsession with watching 9-11 shows it just really? has a deep impact and i always feel like on this day mm. i want to reread articles and mm. i want to rewatch things and so uh hopefully you don't just blow through today uh, but but you use it as remembrance, uh, time to pray, uh, and uh, yeah, and and a time to be thankful. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show on Twitter at Common Good Talk. That is at Common Good uh, Talk. Well, you found a really interesting article at Plow dot com. Is that how you say it? P L O U G H. Uh, I believe it's pronounced ploof. Ploof? <laughs> English is so weird. We speak for a living. We speak good. Uh, it is called The Interim God, The Interim God by Ebhard uh, Arnold. You're going to read a little bit of this for us before we dive into it. Well, as a quick disclaimer, I'm going to try to read it. It's a big word. We'll right. I'm, I did a quick glance. Here I we tend go. to pull stuff off like the really basic websites, and you're like, plow.com. <laughs> is that supposed to be an impressive so. plow.com? I think so. All right. So it says, uh, in October 1924, five years after the German Revolution, Plow's founding editor, Eberhard Arnold gave a speech in a small mining town in Saxony, Germany, to a working-class audience. This article is based on that talk. According to the ancient Persian prophet Zoroaster, two opposing powers are active in the world. These powers are not inseparably divided between this world versus the other world, spirit versus matter. Rather, they are opposing poles challenging one another, good and evil, life and death, light and darkness, obscurity and clarity, the contrast between day and night. There are many who believe that religious people, the idealists, the devout, are on one side in the struggle, while materialists, those concerned with outward things, are on the other side. Certainly, this classification appears justified, but it misses the point. 
The great struggle takes place in the heart of every person, in every materialist, just as much as in every religious person. We cannot say that the good are on one side and the bad are on the other, nor is it true that the religious life is good while the materialist life is bad. The important thing is to discern where materialist thinking puts its faith and where religious life finds its God, where the spirit of each is found and what each values. The great struggle takes place in the heart of every person. In religion, as well as in atheism, there is an anti-God whom we can worship. The early Christians were convinced that there is a God in the world who is not the God of Jesus Christ. There is a God of godless world religion antagonistic to the life of Jesus, a God of the present era hostile to God's future. The nature of this anti-God is work without soul, business without love, machinery without spirit, and lust instead of joy. It craves for possessions without mutual help, destroys competitors, and idealizes private property obtained through fraud. It is a god of the present age, an interim god. This demonic force is at work even in the most religious places where devotion wears its most pious mask. We read in early Christian writings that a god of this world has blinded the minds of those who cannot believe and are perishing. It has corrupted their vision so that they are no longer able to see what really matters. Jesus, the leader of the coming age, declared war on this spirit. He spoke of this fight and of certain victory when he said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. I'll just stop there because that is an avalanche. What do you think? It's so good. And I would encourage people to go to plow.com and read this because this is the battle we fight, right? It is often not against like, I don't know a ton of people or myself who's like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to choose to just give up my faith right now. But instead, we begin to worship other things. Uh, oftentimes, the Bible you know, paints them as idols. But that verse has always been haunting to me. You're going to serve both God or mammon or you know, a lot of translations say God or money uh, in this kind of divided soul. And Jesus you know, says, uh, basically, follow me with everything you have. That's just a powerful, it's a powerful uh, uh, idea. It's a powerful article here. So he says, uh, we would not be able to understand the term mammon unless we knew the other names by which Jesus exposes the spirit. He calls it the murderer from the beginning and, quote, the father of lies and refers to its emissaries as unclean spirits. Mammonism is its nature, murder, its trade, lying, its character, and impurity, its face. To the moralist, these four traits may seem unrelated, but in truth, there is no fundamental difference. Mammonism is the covetous will to seize, possess, and enjoy. Thus, these apparently different designations, mammon, lying, murder, and immorality, disclose one and the same spirit, Mm -hmm. one and the same God. The reality around us shows the enormous power this God possesses in the world. And I think that part of what's haunting about this is at least alluding to some of the ways that this idea kind of creeps into the church. Yeah. I'd be curious to know in what ways do you see this actually played out at a like local church or maybe global church level? Yeah, I, I think a bunch of different ways. I, it, one of them makes me think of all the stories we keep doing of pastors who are grasping for power and money mm-hmm. and churches that are kind of off mission and trying to achieve something that's not biblical. This kind of draw of power, this draw of money, this draw of acclaim uh, can be so strong. And um yeah, what's the teaching point for individuals out there for you? If you're preaching this message, God and Mammon, or this passage, uh, what is it? Ian Simpkins preaches this? What's the takeaway? Man, there's a. I think there's a couple of takeaways. One of the things I would say is, you'll either love money and use people, mm. or use money and love people. That's good. I think I think that's how it works. And if you really love money or whatever that Mammon is for you, you will probably use people to get it or to get more of it or to climb up that ladder. I think that's kind of inevitable. 
I think it's part of what Paul was saying when he wrote to Timothy. He said, um, teach them to be generous, not just sort of because we need generous people. He says, to not lay up, to not make their hope wealth, yep. riches, because it's so unstable. It's so uneasy. But tell them to take hold of the life that is truly life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of what he's what he's getting at here. Jesus says, lay up no treasure for yourself on earth. Sell all you have and give to the poor. I wonder why... You know, when the rich man is asking Jesus what he has to do, and Jesus says, oh, just uphold these commands, and the guy says, I've done all those, what else? Yep. His what else is so compelling to me, because why would he bother saying what else if he was satisfied in what yep. he was doing? He's like, nah, yep. Jesus is getting at the thing. He's like, yes, but there's one thing, though, that still holds your heart. Yep. And if you're not willing to actually let that go, then we're going to have problems. Yeah, the story uh, like uh, of the rich ring r- ruler is also so... It's so haunting to me when I read that, when it says the guy goes away sad. Like, very few of us are like, you know what, I want to turn my back on God. I I want to be done with God. I don't want to believe in him. But it's like, I want God plus some other stuff. Uh, And uh, yeah, just at our church this past Sunday, we talked about this uh, on our Monday show. And when you and I discussed what we preach, talking about idol worship, Mm -hmm. uh, these are these things that were never meant to be gods that we often make the gods of our lives that we give our worship to, whether it's money or power, acclaim. Uh, notoriety, whatever else it might be. Uh, and, and that's just, uh, that, that is in many ways the struggle of the day-to-day Christian life. I, I, I think this is kind of where it all kind of comes to a head. It says, we must get rid of the idea that the kingdom Jesus proclaimed is purely otherworldly. The decisive question is, how will the spirit of life come to rule in each person, in each moment, in each body, and throughout the whole planet Earth? And how will mammon, the demon of covetousness and injustice, be conquered and eliminated? I think that is the million-dollar question. There it is. There it is. So we'd encourage you to go look at that. It's at plow.com. Uh, it's a deep, it's a, it's a heady article. It's, it's a bit um, up uh deep to get through but it's really powerful well coming up next uh we like to laugh we like to do things but we're going to circle back to a story we talked about yesterday uh that took a really heartbreakingly tragic turn uh after our show ended yesterday uh and uh we're going to tackle it uh, just head on and so that's what's coming up next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We are glad to have you joining us today. Uh, we are grateful for to have you with us. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show on Twitter uh, at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. You know, Ian, yesterday uh, we spent a lot of time talking about yesterday being a National Suicide Prevention Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, uh, you did a good job highlighting some organizations that you can help that can provide you help if you're in need. And one of those particular organizations was one called Anthem of Hope. Uh, Anthem of Hope uh, had just launched, I believe, right? Like kind mm-hmm. of a website and some resources and materials uh, for people in ministry and not in ministry, just who are uh, who who are uh, in need of help, uh, who are having suicidal thoughts. Uh, and then uh, after the show, we went home and uh, I was on Twitter uh, and you and I ended up tw- uh, texting back and forth because unbelievably tragically, 
uh, a, a mega church pastor named Jared Wilson out of California who started Anthem of Hope uh, to help people. He's been so open about his own mental illness and struggles with depression and his own uh, suicidal thoughts. Uh, and because of that, he's gotten a huge following of people who he has helped immensely. Uh, tragically, uh, on Monday evening at the age of 30, Jared Wilson, uh, husband, father of two small kids, pastor, uh, took his own life. And that was, I don't know Jared Wilson at all. Uh, in fact, my first real hearing about him was when you talked about Anthem of Hope yesterday. Mm. And, uh, but it was something about having just talked about that and then reading this, even for me, who doesn't know him, it was such an unbelievable gut punch. And like everything we talked about about suicide yesterday was kind of like crystallized in that story. Uh, and so you and I text back and forth, like, ah, we have to talk about this again. Like, this yeah. is just unbelievably gut-punching, tragic. Uh, I feel it, as I said, I have, don't know this person at all. I can't imagine what it's like for his family, uh, for the church he's a part of. He was the, uh, one of the pastors at Greg Laurie's church out in California. Uh, for all the people he's helped, it's just people were flooding Twitter with it. And uh, what was your reaction uh, when you heard about this tragic story? I mean, I, I was heartbroken, man. You, you had sent me a picture, and I hadn't seen it yet. And I said, no, that can't, that can't yeah. be true. And then I, I just I did a quick Google search, and I, I, couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I, you know, we had interacted on Twitter a couple of times, nothing really serious, but he was such a vocal advocate yeah. uh, for suicide prevention and mental health awareness. And, um, you know, part of what we had said yesterday, too, is how important it is for churches to talk about this. He was, in a lot of ways, kind of leading the charge Absolutely. and was very honest about his own struggle. So none of that even was really a secret. In fact, um, on September 9th, he tweeted, uh, loving Jesus doesn't always cure suicidal thoughts. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure depression. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure PTSD. Loving Jesus doesn't always cure anxiety. But that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't offer us companionship and comfort. He always does that. And he was sharing things like this. I mean, leading up to the day that uh, he tragically took his own life. Yeah. And I think, you know, just watching Twitter erupt with stories and comments from people who knew him well or served with him or served under him. You know, I I, uh, I tweeted later last night, I think, that um, just because someone's an advocate doesn't mean they're cured. Yeah. And oftentimes I think it's it's the opposite. Yeah. And, and that is so convicting. And even thinking about the people that we idolize right now, you know, what are the people and what are the, what are the struggles? And pastors, in, in some weird sense, seem to be um, particularly susceptible to this, I think. I'm not, I'm not quite sure why. but I, I never would have thought that until more like within the last six months or so. Really? Hear story after story after story, for sure. So Ed Stetzer wrote an article for Christianity Today and um, just simply said, a pastor dies by suicide. Three things we all need to know. And Stetzer, who... Uh, it says even in his post, he's like, I'm a part-time pastor now, but I, I do know the the labors of being a full-time pastor and the weights. And I just think his his three are pretty good. And uh, if we have time, we can maybe flesh them out. But yeah, I, wanted to, I wanted to share the three. Uh, he says, first, I think many times people in the church are unaware of what happens behind the curtain. Um, that's definitely true. Second, he says, pastors often don't know where to turn. And he says, finally, uh, in part, this is a misunderstanding of the gospel and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So I'd love to know, I know that that's for someone that you look up to and yeah. appreciate, you know, particularly in times of tragedy. How, how do those three hit you, and do you find them to be helpful or missing, or what would you add, what would you take away? I, I do find them to be helpful because, um, and, and I do appreciate, uh, and part of, that's the great irony or tragedy, I should say, in this, uh, one of the great tragedies in this is 
somebody like Jared Wilson was helping people understand this. Right, exactly. Uh, out of his own pain, but after also out of the research he's done and the work he's done and the people he's met with. The amazing thing about Twitter yesterday was all these people talking about how much this guy helped him, helped them. Hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, so Setzer's stuff there is is helpful. Um, but, you know, what was really hard for me is, and I, and I would love your thoughts on this, is um, like from the outside, you look at somebody like Jared Wilson and he's got two great little kids with he's got lots of pictures of. He has, clearly has a wife he adores. Uh, he's doing good work. He's advocating against suicide. Uh, if this isn't something you struggle with, I think that's what makes it really confusing. Yeah. Is like, how do people end up there? And I've been following you on Twitter and you're really, you've done some good work on this and helping people kind of understand this. Because I think for most people, myself included, to be honest with you, this is not something I struggle with, right? And so I see it and my first inclination is like, how did, like I have this caricature in my mind of the person who kills himself, right? Mm. And so I look at him and I'm like, how, how? Mm. why, right? I guess it's more, or why, yeah. uh, what would you say to those who, who are feeling that way? Because, again, when you look at this guy's social media profile, that's accurate. He wasn't lying. Great family, great kids, great church, making an influence. You'd be like, what What was going on? And I think that's what's so scary about suicide. Yeah, and we're going to have some mental health experts on the show later this month because, you know, all of September is uh, Suicidal Awareness yep. Month and Prevention okay. Month. And I would say a couple of things. One, why is a very uh, understandable question. But then the list comes, and yep. I think this is where people who struggle with depression get frustrated. Like, why? You have a great wife, yeah, great yeah. kids. And they, I know that's not true, but and, that's my first inclination. And they know it. that they have a great wife and kids. Yeah. Or they know they have a great paying job. You know, I was talking about my buddy that I was chatting with over the weekend who said um, people think it's just sort of like, oh, you're just really sad. Mm -hmm. You're really bummed out. He's like, that's not what depression is. And I think when we relegate it to these categories of like, just snap out of it or look at how good your life is or all these things that I think we're naturally inclined to do, it just further perpetuates the narrative that many people struggling with mental health already feel, and that's nobody understands me. Mm. So when someone says, but look at all the good, they're like, yeah, I'm aware of the good, but I, I'm like, I have an illness. And when we further stigmatize that in church world, maybe not even overtly from the stage, but by just simply saying things like snap out of it or Jeremiah twenty nine eleven or, you know, like that kind of stuff, yep. I think often comes from a good place, which is why it's so hard to talk about this, because you're not talking about railing against people who are being belligerent. Yep. You're talking about people who are honestly, I think, trying their best, which is maybe another challenge for us. I don't think it's just about, oh, if you struggle with depression, go get help. It's right. We need to be proactive as church community to say, how do we better understand this? Let's yeah. host workshops. Let's attend seminars. Let's watch videos because it's really, really clear that the vast majority of the church has no idea what mm. it's really talking about here. And I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. like, uh, I, And I would count myself as one of those. But you've admitted that. And that's and I huge. Like that's a huge more. deal. Totally. I feel like I'm understanding more. And like, for instance, Greg Laurie posted a picture this morning on Twitter. Greg Laurie is a senior pastor, again, of Harvest, where he where Jared Wilson was one of the pastors. Uh, and he, Greg Laurie literally posted a picture, said this is from last Saturday, and it's Jared Wilson baptizing this girl, uh, and they're man. so happy and, like, hugging each other. And there's part of me that was like, I wonder if there's something about, like, the high highs of that for people mm -hmm. who struggle with this just makes the lows that much harder and that we shouldn't be surprised. But, man, just such a gut-punch tragic thing. And I think it, it has to remind us, we talked about it in theory yesterday, yeah, and now right. sadly the reality is now you talk about it in reality. 
that we've got to do a good job of caring for not just our pastors, obviously, but for everybody. Uh, and, and the church needs to um, do a better job, just do a better job. Uh, like you said, understanding and also giving outlets for uh, for people who are struggling. Yeah, and I, I think it's important that we grieve. Yeah. Um, you can support Jerry Wilson's family and other organizations that do work like this. I think um, we can feel no shame in seeking help when we need it. Yeah, We can do our work to honestly, even in small ways, make sure people around us know that we love them, that we care about them, that they matter, yeah. um, and that we're there for them no matter what, that there doesn't need to be any shame associated with admitting that you have an illness yeah. and be the kinds of people that advocate for and come alongside. I just think we just, we have to do it. It's an unbelievably tragic story that needs to drive us to prayer, but also to some deep thinking uh, and some 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 consideration. So be praying for uh, his family uh, at this unbelievably hard time. Well, coming up next, we're going to have a friend of yours uh, in studio with us. Her mm-hmm. name is Steph Coleman. She's brilliant. And uh, we're excited to talk to her over the next two segments. That's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. You can uh, follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show and on Twitter at Common Good Talk, at Common Good Talk. Well, Ian, we always enjoy having people in studio. Uh, always? Usually. Usually. We can go back with a couple over the nine months that weren't, but uh, generally what we often like to do is to bring people in uh, who are smarter than us. And so- Not uh, hard to do. Yep, yep. Uh, our next guest, she said that she taught people theological German. And so right there, I was like, well, mm-hmm. no, we I'm got out. it. Two minutes for my blood. <laughs> we got it. Uh, and so we are thrilled to be joined uh, by Stephanie Coleman. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Um, so excited to be here. Absolutely. So- uh, something that uh, used to, when people would come in, we would just read their bio and tell, you, tell people about you. But uh, something we began to do is just tell us about yourself. How would, uh, what would you like people to know about you? Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. So um, I'm Stephanie, but everyone calls me Steph. Only strangers call me Stephanie. <laughs> uh, just so you know. Ooh, there shots you fired. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. So I've been in ministry since I was about 18 or 19 years old. Um, done all kinds of things. I've been a youth worker, an uh, international campus minister in Bangkok, Thailand, in Tübingen, Germany. Um, I've been a volunteer hospital chaplain. Wow. But for the last four years, I've worked for Community Christian Church. So I've been the adult ministries director at our Lincoln Square location, and I'm now um, our Community 412 coordinator for our Chicago locations. Awesome. So it's already so clear how much cooler she is than both of us, right? And, I'm, I, and we won't be able to get to all of this, but I, I want to read just some of the talking points that she provided because this will give you, I think, a glimpse into your brain. And then I want to talk about an article that you wrote, but just bulleted. You talked about uh, women in ministry, education as a tool for being taken seriously, uh, needing education for the road ahead, seminary friendships across the country, vulnerability in ministry, friendly fire in ministry, self-care, writing is self-care benefit to being overeducated for my roles like i would love to dedicate a half hour to each of those which this is maybe a little preemptive i just love to have you back because i think these are really important topics but you wrote an article for christianity today simply entitled why i chose seminary why don't you walk us through what that was all about sure so um it was kind of in response to an article that was written on christianity today kind of i think it was titled the surprising reason why women choose seminary and Mm. i read it and was like, that's none of it's surprising. Part of it was, mm. 
oh, women should be need more education than men to be taken as seriously. Oh, interesting. Or women have a desire for a deep understanding and knowledge of what we're all about, theology, Bible, everything. Um, and so I sat down and wrote, why did I choose seminary? Mm. Um, and I'd never really thought about it in one coherent way. And as I was unpacking it, I realized it was in response to a lot of things that I had noticed my whole life. My mm. grandfather was a preacher at the same church for 37 years in South of Atlanta. My uncle's a preacher. My other uncle's a campus minister. And I saw how easily they would get mm. authority just by mm. being in a room. Um, and in contrast, I look young. I know you, this is radio, so you can't see me, but I look younger than I am. And I've always been assumed that I'm in my 20s, which uh, I'm always told is going to be a compliment. Later. <laughs> right, right, but I'm But in sure. a professional setting, uh-huh. it's very discouraging to walk into mm. a room where you're hoping to be listened to and ask, have someone ask you if you're 21. Yeah. Because right. yeah. no one takes 21-year-olds seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and so seminary for me was a way to gather education and a few more credentials to be able to say that no, I belong to the table. I belong right. here. I have a voice instead of being spoken over. Mm. Um, but in the process of writing the article, I realized that I went to seminary maybe for those reasons, but I came out realizing I'd already had a voice all along mm. um, and that it just gave me the tools to excavate what was already there and to own the voice that God had given me. That's yeah, I, I love that what you said at the end of the article. It writes, I went to seminary hoping to prove myself, hoping to learn more and hoping to be equipped for my calling. And I came out realizing I had nothing to prove that my calling is enough. My identity as God's beloved daughter is enough. Uh, That is just really golden right there. And I'm curious why, uh, what was that journey like for you? And then maybe also, uh, I think all of us can resonate on some level having struggles living out of that identity Hmm. and it being really difficult. So talk about that for us a little bit. Sure. So um, I've known that I wanted to be in ministry since I was really little. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather was hugely instrumental in that, um, which is ironic because apparently before I was born, he was very anti-women in ministry. No kidding. And it took having a granddaughter and the first granddaughter wow. to say, like, why why can't women do the things that I'm doing? So I grew up with him constantly affirming me. He wow. would shake people, as he called them, out of church, shaking their hands, yep. helping them out of the church so they wouldn't stay for forever. Shake them out of the church. Um, and I That's would help funny. him with that. So I would stand every Sunday after church and I would shake <laughs> them out of church. And he would constantly affirm, Steph is going to be a minister. She's wow. going to be a preacher. She's going to be a professor. She's going to be in ministry in mm. some way. Um, and so I grew up with that. And then becoming a high school student, there was kind of a, a culture shock to realizing that not the whole the whole world did not think this way. Right. That right. even inside of my grandfather's inner circle, there was still a lot of pushback to, okay, it was cute when she was little, but can she really read scripture now? Can she really do a communion meditation now? Right. Um, at some point, I was too old, which is ironic, um, mm. to be the cute girl who is reading scripture and yep. doing all that. Um, and so that's when he started talking to me about going to Bible college or going to seminary. Um, but I, the Bible college he was uh, really wanting me to go to was the one he started, and I wasn't going to be completely in his shadow for my whole <laughs> yeah, life. Yeah. So I went the opposite direction and went to a women's college, hmm. a liberal arts women's college in Atlanta, and then decided I'll do this, and then I'll go to seminary. Yeah. Um, and so I went to seminary, and I knew that, this was going to be a place where I could learn and discover 
but also a place where I could kind of try on a bunch of different callings because I was going to be around people right. from all over the world. Absolutely. We have a large international population at Emmanuel. And so being in classes with people from Zimbabwe and right. Zambia, uh, Chile, um, Uruguay was just so refreshing. Mm. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit too, because I, I know a number of women in ministry who didn't have the experience you had with your grandfather, who their whole lives have been hearing mm-hmm. that you're not enough, you'll never be enough. And I, I mean, to be really blunt, Brian and I are both straight white men, right? So like, <laughs> we, I don't have the same experiences by a long shot that I know plenty of people listening have. Like what encouragement or hope or challenge would you give to someone either A, who's listening, thinking, is this even really a discussion worth having? Or B, they're feeling like they're on the receiving end of some of this denigration. Like how would you, how would you speak to that a little bit? I mean, I constantly go back to Galatians where it says there is no male nor female nor Jew nor Gentile, no slave nor free. All are one in Christ Jesus. And I've really held on to that throughout college that when in in seminary, uh, my husband and I got married and then we went to seminary and he was the part time student because he's an engineer to this Mm. day. Um, But he wanted to take classes because he became a Christian in college. Mm. So he we didn't want to constantly feel like I was the one that had all the knowledge and that Mm. I was teaching him. So he went to seminary, but people would hear that we were in seminary and they would ask him, what are you studying? Mm. And he would constantly point to me and say, no, my wife's the full-time student. I'm, I'm just taking classes for fun. And literally people would turn around and walk away. Mm. And I would have to, yes, people I'd known my whole life, Mm. people who I went to church with since I was born would just walk away because they didn't know what to say. Mm. Um, And so I learned in seminary that you have to find your tribe. And sometimes that means making it, Mm. reaching out and saying, who wants to get coffee? Other women. What does it look like? I formed a book group, um, a book club, and we now live literally all over the country, um, Portland, California, Georgia, Tennessee. I'm in Chicago. And we still meet once a year and just no kidding. hang out and catch up, um, spend time together. We mm. went to London a few years ago together. We just try to live life together, and that is so important. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, wondering before uh, our next commercial here, wondering uh, what is it that you do at Community? You've got a, it seems like a bunch of different titles. And so uh, what is it you, that you do and what is it that you love to do there? Sure. So I am the Community 412 coordinator, which mm-hmm. means I um, organize a lot of our social justice ventures. So mm-hmm. I organize Kids Hope, which is a mentoring program at a Chicago public school. Wow. Um, I also partner with p- local pantries to start hot meal programs. Um, we do justice film panels where we show documentaries. Um, and then I'm also part, I teach some, so mm-hmm. I preach every once in a while. Um, and I'm also on the New Thing church planning team. So I'm the editor for our global communications. Wow. And other than that, she's not doing much. So. <laughs> Other than that, a lot of free time. Well, you're listening to Steph Coleman. See, I got Steph now because now That's we know right. each other so we can right. go. <laughs> nice when you job. came in, you were Stephanie. When now you're Steph. So mm, uh, Steph Coleman is joining us, and we're grateful you're going to stay with us for another segment. So that's what's coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, well, we have the pleasure of being joined uh, again by Steph Coleman. So thank you for not running out during the uh, commercial break, but staying here with us. She tried. No one has done it yet, but we've got that lock on the door. So <laughs> That makes us sound so creepy, Brian. Yes, you yes, must finish. You must finish. Uh, 
uh, if you missed the first segment uh, with Steph, just some great stuff about uh, her article, why she chose to go to seminary and kind of her journey. You can find that at the podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. So you were talking a little bit about what it is like to be a woman in ministry. Uh, and, and you also gave us some some great stats in this article uh, about the great gender debate. And the headline from the Daily Mail just says men will dominate 75 percent of the conversation during conference meetings, kind of taking it away from the church, just kind of all workforce, mm-hmm. workplace. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. It's just looking at the phenomenon, whereas when there are men and women in the same room, that men are going to dominate conversations, mm-hmm. dominate discussions, especially in a professional setting. Um, and if that's true in a workplace where parity is more likely, then I can't, I don't know the stats for a ministry workplace where mm-hmm. it's more likely that a woman is going to be outnumbered. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's 75% in a typical workplace, who knows what it is in a ministry setting? And I, in my experience, it's very true. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be um, more vocal about what I do want to say, and I have to be willing to interrupt, which is not something I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but often women are also interrupted more often. I think it's two and a half times more likely to be interrupted even by another woman. No kidding. Which is very uh, discouraging sometimes. Yeah, right. Because it takes a lot of perseverance to be heard. Yeah, right. So I'm wondering then, one of the things that Brian and I have become increasingly aware of is that sometimes we're just blind to our own blindness, right? Mm -hmm. There's stuff that we'd like to do a better job at, but don't even know where to begin or sometimes don't even realize that we're some, in some cases a part of the problem. How, how would you encourage us or men to be better allies in this regard? Like what mm-hmm. other practical mm-hmm. things for us to consider or to step into that would, that would help fulfill that? Yeah. I'd say first is to ask yourself the question when you walk into a room, where are the women? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we will walk into rooms and not even realize that it is completely male dominated. Um, whereas I notice immediately what the dynamics of the room are. Um, Another thing to consider is a technique called amplification, which is something that actually female staffers in the Obama White House started when they noticed that they were being talked over or interrupted or men were taking credit for their ideas. Mm. And the idea is that when a woman says something, the next woman to talk will reference back the point that she made specifically by name and Mm. say, like LaToya said, Mm. blah, 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 blah. And then add on her own comment. And then the next woman who will talk will say, like LaToya and Steph said, mm. and just keep that process going so that by the time the idea is accepted, there's no, everyone knows who started the idea. Yeah, right. um, and that's something that they did for each other, but something that could very easily be yeah. implicated. Like you could do that in any workplace. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. good. Uh, not to switch gears too much, but you wrote another article that I want to make sure to highlight also at Christianity Today. Uh, called The Broken Minister. And I noticed just the tagline says, when you experience hurt from those who serve beside you. Mm. Uh, that never happens to us as pastors. <laughs> just, <laughs> and so just wondering, what's the what's the genesis of that story? Maybe what, where did that come out of? And when just what were some of the main points you made in this article about kind of that pain of people who serve alongside you? Yeah, so um, that article was the result of probably years of therapy. Uh, <laughs> But, Usually makes for the best articles, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> um, as a 24-year-old, my husband and I went um, overseas and served in a campus ministry um, in Tübingen, Germany for about two and a half years. Wow. Um, and while we were there, um, it was a great, amazing experience, changed my life in a lot of ways. Um, but there was one person on my team who um, was very difficult to work with. 
um, and specifically me, mm. um, not for the men on the team, but for me as the uh, only female. Got it. Um, and that made it very difficult to come into the office sometimes. Um, there were a lot of labels that I was trouble, that I was a liar. Oh, wow. That um, at one point I had held every role on the team except for this person's role. Wow. But I was still told by this person that I was incompetent. Mm. Um, and it was a very odd place to be in because on the one hand I'm doing and responsible for so much. But on the other hand, I'm told I'm not doing a good job. But when I asked for roles to be taken and given to my male colleagues, no, we don't know that they can handle those. Mm. And wow. so it was this constant push mm. and pull. Um, and so when I started processing that, I realized how much of it felt like friendly fire. Like mm. I am constantly in a situation where I don't know what to believe, what to do, how mm. to, how to react. Um, but I'm also an international campus minister. So right. I'm cross-culturally, cross-linguistically trying to minister to college students um, while at the same time feeling like my own foundation is being eroded away yeah. constantly. Yeah. So I think that segues really well. One of the things you talk about, and I've heard you talk about many times is the importance of self-care and ministry. And it mm. ironically is one of the things I feel like people in ministry do the worst right. or yes. are just not mindful of. I don't know that's mm -hmm. because we're bad at it. I just don't think it's often valued. And one of the things that you've identified as the vehicle by which you find self-care is your writing. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit more to, I know that doesn't apply just to pastors and ministers, but right. self-care across the board, I think is something that we all could probably raise the collective water level around. Yeah. What, what would you say to that particular issue? I mean, self-care is if we think about it as a well. So if you are digging your well really deep with self-care, then you're constantly going to be able to pull out of that well and good. be able to pour into other people. Mm. But even then, like if your well is so deep that you start to take it for granted, you're eventually going to tap out. Mm. Um, so it's something that you have to keep pouring into. You have to keep tapping into the groundwater around you. Um, so for me, that looks like um, working lots of different roles, but part-time. Um, I have an eight-year-old daughter, wow. um, so I'm also the flex time working parent who pick, does pick up, drop off, yep, all that yep, stuff. Right. Um, but it also looks like reading um, and viewing my reading as sacred, not as some extra thing I do. Mm. And then my writing time, I spend at least two hours every day writing or journaling or editing or something. No kidding. Um, just for myself. And sometimes articles like these kind of spring up out of that, yeah. but they are not the goal when I start the writing process. Yeah. And I, we talk about this often, but a lot of people struggle to even think to themselves, I have time for self-care, right? Mm -hmm. I can't do anything. Now you feel like you've got too much in your schedule, but yet you prioritize self-care. So speak to those people mm -hmm. who are like, hey, that's great for those people who've got an hour or two, but I'm too busy to care about that. Um, I would encourage people to look at your calendar and say, I'm in charge of my calendar. Mm -hmm. You decide what you're going to say yes to. And in some ways you feel like you can't say yes or no to things. Like some things are just requirements. Right. But a lot of the things that we do every day, we've said yes to. Yeah. Um, and also how many hours a night are you spending on Instagram or... <laughs> Zero. Not Zero. Right. I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> or, or watching binging Netflix shows right, um, yeah. and instead making a con conscientious effort to wake up an hour earlier and yeah. maybe go to bed an hour later. Mm. If you know that at night you you just need to veg, that's fine, but right. start earlier so that you're vegging less. That's smart. And one of the things I've always appreciated about you is I think you're just a wellspring of not only just like wisdom, but also resources that I wouldn't necessarily think to go to. And we've talked at length 
in other places about the need to read mm-hmm. works of women theologians, theologians of color. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, in the last minute or so that we have left, other books or websites or even ways for people to get in contact with you if they want to ask more questions like just just give us every resource you can think of on the top of your head to point people toward who are listening thinking yes 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 i i want to continue this conversation in my own life where would you point them um well i would first tell them to look at who they're reading and ask Mm -hmm. themselves the questions who am i representing by reading them um how many white how many people of color how many men how many women yeah um and you'll be surprised i think at when you look at yourself, your shelves, how many people reflect who you are rather mm-hmm. than who mm-hmm. you want the people around you to be. That's right. Um, and so I would ask like for every Bonhoeffer, add someone like AJ Levine or for every Eugene Peterson, add Austin Channing Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, just try to find those people, those voices that are going to make you uncomfortable maybe, maybe at first, right? but it's a good uncomfortable because yeah. that means you're growing. Yeah. Um, and then I would point them to um, places like The Perch that does self-care in ministry. Mm. Um, it's in Aurora or whatever it is that makes you happy, what fills you up. So for me, it's writing. So I try to take at least once or twice a year a writing class at a s- Chicago studio called um, Story Studio. Mm. Um, but I also do storytelling and not Christian storytelling, just storytelling from my okay. life in very raw and real ways with groups of people who would ordinarily not um, hang out at a church. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting. That's really challenging because I know sometimes self-care and just things that fill you up, as you said, are the first things that go (laughs) because we think we're so busy and and all this stuff. Steph, thank you so much. This was great. Uh, And I'm sure that there are some people out there who have been challenged and who have been encouraged. So thank you for taking the time to do this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. That music can only mean one thing, interweb insanity. You got it right. I'm so proud of you. Interweb insanity. The way this works, if you're new to the show, is our producer, PJ, Keith Conrad. They give us... uh, some of them are funny stories from the internet. Some of them are borderline funny, but also borderline appropriate. And so we are going to laugh or we're going to gasp. Okay, and before I read this first kicker, uh, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned the ways that you could get uh, in contact with Steph, just because I think that uh, she's got a lot of wisdom. People are probably going to want to get a hold of her. So you can email her at stephcoleman at communitychristian.org. That's Steph with an F. So stephcoleman at communitychristian.org. She also just launched a website. That's stephaniejcoleman.com. Again, Stephanie with with an F, stephaniejcoleman.com if you want to get a hold of her there. All right, here we go. This one uh, is out of a state I don't know that we've ever done before Would in this be segment. Florida! It is Florida. Burglar apparently loves that chicken from Popeyes. Uh, I see what it did, did I read it wrong? Burglar apparently loves that chicken from Popeyes. A man accused of pilfering poultry. <laughs> Have you ever heard the word pilfering? No. And and cash from a Popeyes in Port St. Lucie. Is that right? Lucie is where they, <laughs> that is the spring training home of your New York Mets. Oh, my New York Mets yes. has police crying foul. I mean foul, which doesn't translate to radio very well. <laughs> <laughs> the first one had a W. It doesn't matter. According to information from Port St. Lucie police, the alleged burglar strutted in and went to the cash register area where he placed a chair under the surveillance camera and spray painted the camera lenses. It could be... Uh, said that the thief didn't wing it. Oh, uh, this is going to be the whole article. <laughs> because he had the forethought to bring the paint. He evidently wanted more than a leg, breast, or thigh because investigators 
Report he absconded with cash, multiple cases of chicken, bags of chicken batter, and a tray of chicken. Love that chicken from Popeye's. Nice. <laughs> Is that a real thing? Yeah. Popeye's? That was the actual commercial, though? I think so. Oh, that sounds, yeah. sounded insane. <laughs> but it's good chicken. Uh, but we're, we're Team Chick-fil-A here on uh, The Common Good. No, that's, not, that's not true. <laughs> Jesus Chicken. Okay, calm down. Calm down. Guess where our next one's from? Mm, Florida. It's from Florida and more fast food. Men complaining about cold food threatens McDonald's employee with a gun. Two men were arrested after authorities said they threatened a McDonald's employee with a gun over cold food. According to the report, Jawan Davis and Jordan Dunn pulled out a gun at the window of a McDonald's drive-thru after complaining that their food was cold. Authorities said the men told the employee at the window to remake their food. Officials said the men stated they do not play when it comes to food while waving the gun. Officials said the employee told the men who would re- would remake the food and went to the back of the restaurant and instead called 911. Hmm. Deputies said when they arrived, both men were still at the drive through window. Both men were charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Have you ever heard the expression, the customer is always right? Yeah. Yeah, well, here I am, the customer. That's not our policy. You have to order something from the lunch menu. We've had that one before, haven't we? I think we we have. I think we have. That's good. I think Michael Douglas on there. I think it's Michael Douglas. Yeah, that's such a... It's either Michael Douglas or Jack Nicholson. I think it's Michael Douglas in that movie where he, like, goes crazy as an office (laughs) worker. Which one? I feel like that's all of his movies. Good point. Wisconsin, Illinois' top hat. Man admits he staged kidnapping to get wife's sympathy. Should you find yourself having relationship troubles, police would probably ask you not to do what they say one Wisconsin man did on Wednesday. According to the Columbia County Sheriff's Office, 45-year-old Daryl Mall called and texted his wife Wednesday claiming he had been hit over the head and tied up as he locked up at the end of his work shift. He said his kidnappers forced him to contact her under threat of death. Quote, several... Demands were made via text message to the wife. The sheriff's office said on Facebook she called the police. We found the man at his workplace, zip-tied to a chair and calling for help. But they say <laughs> but they say they didn't find any evidence that his story was true. They're a fantastic couple. I love them. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> Authorities say he was hoping he would, she would show up at his workplace and find him there in distress. That's really a... That's a strange move, man. He needs man. to go back and listen to the marriage one, uh, segment that we did earlier in the show. Oh. Well, we should have said not to do that. Right? Another one from Florida. Wow. Man jailed for giving his girlfriend a wet willy. Authorities say Florida man has been arrested for being belligerent and giving his girlfriend a wet willy. We're back to St. Lucie. A St. Lucie County Dang. Sheriff's deputy went to the home after Joseph Sarici's girlfriend told authorities he was drunk on the living room floor when she returned from work earlier this month. According to an affidavit, she said Sarici accompanied her and her daughter to another home where Sarici continued to be belligerent and on the way home, grabbed her hand, pulled her arm, and gave her a wet willy by sticking his wet finger in her ear. Oh, thanks for describing it. If I lean over, I leave myself open to wedgies, wet willies, or even the dreaded rear admiral. Nice. Clearly the Simpsons. <laughs> Is it? Yes. Nebraska. I don't know if we've ever done Nebraska. Man named Keith Urban arrested for impersonating officer threatened strip club employee. Poor Keith Urban. Wow. A 26-year-old Lincoln man was arrested for threatening a strip club employee with a pellet gun and impersonating a police officer, official said. Lancaster County Sheriff's Office deputies were called to Shaker's Gentlemen's Club. I shouldn't have read the name. <laughs> you should have read that. <laughs> Just after 2 a.m. Sunday. Uh, have we given the disclaimer yet? <laughs> Jeez Louise. 
An employee said Keith Urban was causing a disturbance and was escorted out of the business. In the parking lot, Urban told the employee he was an undercover police officer and then pulled what looked like a Glock handgun from his waistband. The employee said Urban pointed the gun in his stomach and said he wanted to speak with the owner. While the employee went to get the owner, Urban left. That was really stupid. I, I'm embarrassed I read <laughs> that much be. of the story. I'm so sorry. I also feel like he didn't just impersonate an officer, but he impersonated Keith Urban. <laughs> yeah, a lot of mistakes. A lot of mistakes in that exchange. This is my, this is my wife, Nicole Kidman, over here. <laughs> Not wink, wink. Oh, well, this has been a little bit of a loony show. Some heavy stuff, some funny stuff, some crazy stuff. But all together, uh, we're glad we're glad you joined us. Uh, glad to have Steph Coleman on today, too. Well, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.